welcome to episode 116 of Africa Past and Present. I'm Peter Allegi. And I'm Peter Lim. And today our distinguished speaker is Norman Etherington with a PhD from Yale and Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Western Australia, as well as being a research affiliate at the University of South Africa. He's author of numerous works on South African history, imperialism and missions, among them the influential preachers, peasants and politics in Southeast Africa in 1978 and the Great Treks in 2001. Among his edited collections are Missions and Empire for Oxford and Mapping Colonial Conquest, both in 2007. Retirement has given Dr. Etherington still more time to write and in the last three years he's published three books, Indigenous Evangelists and Questions of Authority in the British Empire, 1750 to 1940, from Brill, together with Peggy Brock, Gareth Griffith, and Jacqueline Van Ghent. Then Big Game Hunter, a biography of Frederick Sellu, and last year, Imperium of the Soul, the political and aesthetic imagination of Edwardian imperialists, published in Manchester's Studies in Imperialism series. Among other important collections, he contributed to the Cambridge history of South Africa. Welcome, Norman. Oh, hello, Peter and Peter. Now, we should also uh, tell our listeners that uh, Norman uh, knows Peter Lim, that is, quite well. Um, what was it like being his doctoral supervisor? <laughs> well, P Peter came to uh, doctoral studies in history late, uh, many years after his undergraduate degree. And during that time, he had a, um, an amazing career, uh, really as an anti-apartheid activist while working as a librarian at the University of Western Australia. He has a photographic memory. He remembers everything he's ever read. Uh, and uh, he had very definite ideas about what his PhD was going to look like. Uh, whereas I was, uh, had more of an eye to the requirements of examiners in the university and word links and so forth. Um, so um, it did take a while to bed things down. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, so what inspired you to become a professional historian? Um, I, um, I was a Yale undergraduate, and um, at the end of my BA, I was offered a teaching fellowship in the hopes that that might attract me to an academic career. Um, that was a very enjoyable year, but notwithstanding, I went to law school, uh, also at Yale, and after the, um, the first year, I realized that history was really my calling. I couldn't see myself as a lawyer uh, while I enjoyed the study. And so I went over to the history department and said, will you have me back? And they said, yes. So I was enrolled. Um, and in my first year of coursework, I attended the very first seminar on African history ever to be offered at Yale, which was run by Prosser Gifford and Bill Swanson, Maynard Swanson, as he'd be known to South Africans. And uh, in the course of that, uh, as my major essay, I followed Bill Swanson's advice, which was to write something 
on the um, Aborigines parliamentary inquiry in Britain, 1836-37. And then in the course of that, I was quite struck by how influential the testimony of missionaries was. So later when looking for a PhD topic, even though my major field was British Empire and Commonwealth history, uh, I went back to those missionaries and um, devised a thesis topic, which was intended uh, mainly to assess the influence that nationality and theology had on missionaries in South Africa. Um, and I wrote a lot on that, but by the time I put the final thesis together, I had three times the number of words to meet the limit. And I had discovered that my own most interesting findings were not about missionaries at all, uh, but about Africans who joined mission stations, um, who became Christians and who um, changed their lives and their pattern of economic behavior and their family affiliations as the result of that. So a thesis that started out being fairly Eurocentric ended up being African-centric, and that's how my first book came about. And if you focused uh, quite a bit on the area that today we call KwaZulu-Natal, and you talked about all the different motivations that the African Christians or Kolwa had to, quote, take the cloth. But um, what would you say is the correlation then between the spiritual, economic, and other forces in the lives of um, African clergy in the 19th century in, in this region? Uh, I think a, a major factor is that while in the first instance, mission stations, even when they had plentiful land, found it difficult to attract people to the message of Christianity, uh, the people who did join mission stations found that literacy and numeracy were very powerful tools in the developing colonial regime uh, and that their uh, non-Christian traditionalists um, were having difficulty coping with the new economy and they were making headway. And so for them, success in life was accompanied by the new religion and they associated the two even if other people tended not to. Another angle here is the, uh, the role of the African convert uh, in politics. And uh, in some of your early writings, you explained why the indigenous ruler of the Amahlubi people, Langali Baleli, ran away from settler authorities in the 1870s. But you've continued uh, looking at these issues, uh, even recently in your vol edited volume from Brill, you tackle a quite different tussle of Africans with wide authority. That's the Reverend John Langalabaleli Dube uh, against the Natal governor at the time of the Bambaka revolt. And uh, indeed, questions of authority lie at the heart of this book, where you tell of the persecution of other black missionaries. Can you talk about who was in charge in Natal and to what extent we can talk perhaps in a different way of African missionaries, uh, of black missionaries increasingly being in charge of various spheres in their lives. Oh, well, certainly by the 1890s, two important things had happened. 
in Natal, KwaZulu Natal, as it is today. Um, first, what had looked like British authority advantaging black literate Christians who were economically aspirational, a change in colonial policy had given decisive control of politics, the political sphere, back to uh, local white farmers and settlers in the town. So at the very moment that uh, the colonial regime was cr clamping down, the second and third generations of African Christians were finding themselves capable of effective political argument um, and uh, this um, was a force that once started um, never went away. Um, the, the clamp down by colonial authority actually came too late to suppress literacy and uh, political knowledge. The other thing ha that happened is that um, in ways that we still don't totally understand, um, Africans took control of Christian evangelization. Um, this was outside the mission station setting. It was on farms and in towns and at the diamond fields and at the gold fields. And a new, a very powerful evangelical force was underway. And uh, mass conversions began to take place in the, at the end of the 19th century, which had never happened before in Southern Africa. Uh, and uh, at the same time, it had to be said that a traditional authority had taken a blow due to the suppression uh, in wars of um, independent Af African kingdoms, especially the Zulu kingdom. Um, so there were a number of factors that came together um, to make um, African Christian politics very, very interesting at the beginning of the, the 20th century. And one of the interesting things about this book, uh, which you co-authored with Peggy Brock and Garrett Griffiths and Jacqueline Van Ghent, is how you bring Africa in dialogue with processes of change elsewhere uh, in the world, particularly in the British Empire, Jamaica, Australia, New Zealand. Um, what do you think we gain um, in working with this comparative uh, uh, with this comparative method and through this comparative lens about Southern Africa in particular, maybe more so than Nigeria and Cameroon, which are also part of the book. The comparative point that emerges most strongly in any comparison of religious change is the decisive role played by the local non-colonial agents. That is crucial in every instance and it doesn't vary. What does vary are the political circumstances. Um, so um, in uh, New Zealand, where uh, Maori people were by the end of the, by the middle of the uh, 19th century, decisively outnumbered by white settlers, a process that had been occurring in quite a short time, 30 years, um, the colonial authorities were much less worried about the subversive content of Christianity than they were in Natal or Jamaica, where uh, white authority 
um, was represented by a numerical tiny minority of people and um, white authority in those circumstances, colonial authority, as characterized by frequent panics and uh, constant fear and frequent bouts of uh, vigorous repression. And they, it's fun to talk to people about the comparative aspect of things because the traditional mission history with its focus on, on uh, European and North American missionaries can after a while get pretty dull because everybody talks the same language. <laughs> and it also helps South Africanists, right, who, who sometimes uh, inhabit a, a kind of exceptional space in the, in the literature. Yes, that's right. And let, let it be said that uh, it's, it's 50 years ago this year that I made first landfall as a researcher in South Africa uh, doing my PhD. Um, the way we think about doing African history has um, really broadened and changed in a number of ways. When I uh, began taking a postgraduate course, our graduate course in, in African history, the uh, predominant school was, I think, the Wisconsin-based uh, idea of Africanists uh, who should be anthropologically fully conversant through fieldwork with an African society, know an African language, uh, and the imperial uh, history was confided to an entirely separate group of historians in, um, in most countries. So when I first um, began, even when I first began teaching African history, I was careful not to describe myself as an Africanist or an African historian, but a British Empire historian who happened to be very interested in the way Africa had developed and um, very enthusiastic about teaching that to Australian um, university students. In the course of the 1980s and the 1990s, everybody caught up to the importance of the imperial connotation, so much so that um, in the, the late 20th century, in the early 21st century, it's routine uh, when talking about any African country to always talk about colonialism, post-colonialism, uh, and it's much easier to, um, to work across disciplines than it used to be. I never learned to speak Zulu. I suppose I continued to work across fields um, rather than burying myself one. And I might say in respect to both Natal and uh, missions, I, I never intended to go on um, focusing my life on either Natal or uh, religious change, but it was other people who kept dragging me back. <laughs> uh, never letting me go, inviting me to colloquiums and to conferences and, and so forth. And uh, because I'd been taught by one of my thesis supervisors, Robin Winks, to take care of my notes, always keep them properly indexed and abstracted, um, he, he gave me a tool which en enabled me to uh, write things now. I, can, I, I wrote things last year, which drew just a single article that drew on some notes 
taken in the 1960s, some in the 1980s, some in the 1990s, and some as recently as three years ago. Um, and uh, so I'll, I'll express in this little talk uh, my debt to Robert Winks um, for talking me into this and um, my stubbornness in persevering with it. Well, we're glad that you kept those notes, those notes Norman. Uh, turning to another of your great interests, which you've just uh, indicated, the study of empire, or imperialism, and uh, turning to your latest book called Imperium of the Soul. I think it's a tour de force of empire and culture with plenty of connections to South Africa uh, for one, and, and certainly it, it continues in this comparative mold that Peter mentioned. Um, one angle that you have is, is architectural history on Herbert Baker's work, uh, the uh, architect of empire. His work in crafting monuments of empire in South Africa and India. And another angle you approach this study of empire from is personality through the prism of interactions between the generation that included Baker and Sigmund Freud and novelists such as Ryder Haggard and John Buchan, even the archetypal composer of empire, Elgar, and you talk about his uh, Gordon, that's Gordon of Khartoum uh, symphony, not to mention layered personalities of the poet Kipling, who uh, was another to have a South African experience uh, during the Boer War when he, we took a turn as journalist on the Friend newspaper when the British occupied Bloemfontein. I've been reading that uh, journalism lately. And you oh. also, yes, and you also move uh, through the sphere of the works of Joseph Conrad and finally and majestically even Lawrence of Arabia. So there are a lot of um, characters uh, in this book. Um, so for the benefit of the listeners, can you please, it's a complex book, I think, but it's, oh, a, it is. It is. it's a nuanced book. Can you, can you just sort of sketch the broad contours of this work and perhaps explain the significance of these, what you call political and aesthetic imaginations of the Edwardian imperialists. Yeah, um, the best way to approach this is by telling you how it came to be. And to, to do that, I need to stretch right back to my undergraduate days at Yale. My final two years, I was in an honors program called History of the Arts and Letters. Um, and it uh, demanded of the students that they uh, have a pretty high degree of ability to deal with art and architecture, music and literature, as well as history, <clears throat> though history was very central to it. So um, those interests have stayed with me my whole life. Now, when I went to Natal, the second research trip, I met the late Jeff Guy, who became a great friend of mine. Uh, and we were both doing research in the Peter Maritzburg archives at the same time. And uh, he called my attention to Ryder Haggard. Uh, he was interested in, in Haggard um, as an imperialist whom he didn't like. Um, but <clears throat> I hadn't read uh, a great deal of Ryder Haggard as a boy, and I started reading him while I was doing research. Uh, my second research trip to, um, to Natal and to London in 1974 led me to, to a day in the archives and I was reading this report from 
the Secretary for Native Affairs in Natal to the colonial office, and I realized that he was describing the plot of King Solomon's Mines. And that led me to uncover the, the, the links between Haggard and Shepston and to write something about it. But at the very same time that I was there, uh, I was in touch with a uh, literary scholar who'd been an undergraduate friend who was also in London, um, Walt Reed, who's just recently retired as a professor of English at Emory University in Atlanta. And he was very interested in psychoanalysis at the time. And uh, my conversations with him led me to write first a conference paper and then um, an article on Ryder Haggard imperialism um, and uh, the late 19th century intellectual environment from which Freud, as well as Haggard, emerged. That got published in Victorian studies, so um, it was a good outlet. And um, I began to toy with the idea then that that approach might apply to other people. And I, in about 1980, I applied it to John Buchan and wrote something. And I became so convinced of the value of it that I decided not to publish any of my work on this. So every five years or so, uh, I would tackle a different character, but I put the results of my researches aside, wrote extensive essays, and uh, didn't give conference papers about them. Uh, meantime, always had this dream of a book in my mind that would do this. So uh, you mentioned three books, the um, coming out in the last three years, they came out in different circumstances. The indigenous evangelists emerged from a research grant leading to collaborative research from 2008 to 2010. The Big Game Hunter book on Frederick Salou arose out of a publisher's commission to do a book on Salou, and I researched it in six months, and I wrote it in six months. And you can read it in a day. Um, but the uh, Imperium of the Soul, that, that was a work uh, really of a lifetime. But let me ask here a, uh, perhaps a Janus face question, trying to bring this back to, more to African history. Yes. And, and sort of ask who's, whose empire was it in these cultural spheres? And on one level, this book is certainly about these masters of empire. Uh, but uh, what might say all these, this paraphernalia of, of the culture of empire, such as the imposing union buildings in Pretoria that Baker uh, uh, constructed or, or, or planned, or, or Haggard's, Haggard's uh, novels, what did it all mean to black people? And how might the empire and its African subjects have, have influenced all these monumental works? I was pondering, for example, what Elgar's pomp and circumstance might fit or not fit alongside, to paraphrase an historian somewhat insensitive to African history, namely Hugh Trevor Roper. The, uh, he, he spoke yes. derisively of the gyrations of African music, and I was even thinking of African church music. So in other words, what I'm getting at in a roundabout way is, what did all these uh, masters of empire, this soul of empire, what did it all mean for African subjects of empire? Yeah, there, there are two questions there. Um, <clears throat> on one level, to the, these creative conservative imperialists, um, Africa represented to them savagery in the Hugh Trevor Roper sense, 
And the twist on that, which Freud seized on amongst other people of, of that era, was that these people realized that within themselves was a savage um, um, who could not be suppressed and whose subversive uh, messages were omnipresent, albeit in the subconscious. And so the apparatus of suppression became in the individual somewhat analogous to the imperial apparatus of subjection. Now, nobody much thought about what the impact of this literature was on African intellectuals. And uh, in fact, I think it's a subject worth uh, investigating. I, it's certainly worth uh, somebody to do a PhD because you'll see that there's a little um, epilogue after the Lawrence of Arabia chapter two in Imperium of the Soul, in which I talk about um, some of um, the African intellectuals who emerged in the 1950s and 60s um, and the way they responded to that literature. It's quite remarkable in that some circumstances with important writers saying that the first time they read Ryder Haggard with enthusiasm, they were identifying with the white explorers and not with the African imaginative, imaginary African peoples being encountered. Um, so uh, that, that's a subject, it's a question whose answer really awaits further research. Well, speaking of African subjects, um, the, I was just teaching uh, the other day, uh, what, on, uh, a couple of days ago before we recorded this interview about the state building and migration taking place uh, in the early 19th century in Southern Africa. Uh, what um, you covered so nicely in your book, Great Treks. And I remember, you know, years ago, it had stirred up quite a bit of controversy among South African historians. And uh, maybe you could share with the listeners um, something about how a history of mobility in Southern Africa um, stirred up a hornet's nest, uh, what the responses, what the criticism press were, and how also you came back and responded to, to those criticisms, even made it into the pages of uh, academic journals and graduate students are now taught by people like us uh, to, to really acquaint themselves with these debates and incorporate uh, those insights into their own research. Yes, um, what I was um, commissioned to um, by a publisher, by Longmans, to write a book for a series they called Turning Points in, in History, um, specifically on the Great Trek. That came about because I had become a participant in the debate started um, on the, uh, by Julian Cobbing on the so-called Mfakani. Uh, um, <clears throat> so, um, my approach to the uh, to the great trek which on which i'd never read the africana great trek trek was drastically reshaped as the result about of rethinking the Mfakani. and having got this commission i thought when am i ever going to get as a commission as good as this and i made a, a number of quite important methodological decisions the first decision was that it wasn't going to be a book that rode along with the colonialists and the, and the advancing white frontiersmen. 
uh, as they encountered African people. It would be focused on African people encountering those forces uh, and embedded, not necessarily in their point of view, which is difficult for any historian to recapture at this distance, but from the perspective of that side. And that meant uh, not focusing on anybody of authority or influence in the Western Cape or in Britain, but focusing on the great interior of Southern Africa, the, where the Bantu language speakers uh, congregated, by far the most populous section of the entire subcontinent. <clears throat> so that was one methodological consideration, important one, that I would situate my perspective, not on the frontier, but on the interior and watch as these encounters took place. Secondly, I wanted it to be a his history of all Southern Africa. The, the starting point for that was that one of the results of the um, expansion of the Zulu um, kingdom um, and other upsets, slave trading and other things, was that um, some established political groupings moved quite far away from their original homelands. And I realized that this movement was not a new feature in Southern African history, but a long established one, um, analogous in some ways to um, what we see in the Western and Sudan in African history. That control of people and employment of persons, control over labor, was always more important than territory. A third, for, for that reason, then it had to be not a history of South Africa, but a history of Southern Africa. Um, and then I made another, I thought, independent decision, methodological decision, that I would not use any racial terms in the book. I would never refer to blacks or whites um, and those terms would only crop up when um, people who were subjects of the book used them themselves. Uh, I had no idea at the time that I was doing this that uh, the novelist John Katzey had made exactly the same decision uh, when writing Waiting for the Barbarians and uh, his book on Michael Kay. And uh, I think that many people still have difficulty coming to terms with a history that departs so much from established narrative structures, the frontier, the advance from the Cape, the focus on the interior, the focus on mobility, um, and uh, the refusal to accept what became for a time under apartheid, a colonial racialized order, the refusal to acknowledge that as some eternal fact about Southern Africa. And I think um, it wasn't, the established historians looking at this were, many were perplexed. Um, Paul Malin had written a book um, called the, the History of the African People of South Africa. So that was like a, a piece of segregated history. I didn't want to do segregated history. Uh, I didn't have, I had some qualms about um, people uh, accepting me with my background and experience 
as someone speaking on behalf of African people, but I didn't imagine that I was speaking on behalf of African people. I imagined myself rather like um, Edward Gibbon when he sat down to study the Roman Empire, <laughs> occupying some Olympian or a high mountaintop uh, and watching with great interest what was going on down below and trying to catch through documents the voices of individuals caught up in these big processes of change. Incidentally, I hope to do a, do the next chapter of that sometime. I'd like, I finished that book in 1854. I'd really like to go on and may within the next year or two um, take up the story 1854 to 1912. <clears throat> well, we'd certainly uh, love to read uh, a sequel to that, uh, Norman. Uh, maybe we can uh, move towards uh, bringing this very interesting discussion to a conclusion by just thinking a little bit about the the way you also use this interesting book to uh, develop the historical landscape to craft uh, a narrative and invite the reader to reimagine these movements of people that you talk about. And at, at the beginning, I recall you use the metaphor of an eagle flying not over the mother city, Cape Town, but over this, this heartland, the central South Africa, and this focus on the landscape, which was also something very evident in, in the work you just mentioned of the novelist John Katsia. And I, I heard him recently in Adelaide give a reading where he compared the South from, from Argentina and Chile and South Africa and Oceania uh, in this way, speaking to the, to the landscape. Um, this focus on the landscape leads me to a, a final question about um, maps and cartography in African history. And some years ago, you edited a, a beautifully illustrated work comparing maps in Southern Africa and Australia. And so the question that came to my mind is what can cartography tell us or not tell us about history? And, and here I'm reminded of, a, of, a, of another recent splendid book on South African surveying and cartography by Lindsay Brown. Yes, great book. I'll tell you how I got into the cartography. Um, I'd always loved maps. When I was 10 years old, I plastered my bedroom with National Geographic Society maps of, of the whole world, every one that I had, and, and every, every wall was covered with this. So the interest in maps goes back a long way. But when I was preparing to write the great treks, um, I realized that there were many parts of the, the landscape that I needed to familiarize myself with by, by seeing them, those parts of Southern Africa that I hadn't visited. And to prepare myself, I set out to collect all the old maps I could because the, the modern map is useless in telling you where um, Mzilikazi might have been or what the um, group names were that were used um, in, in the Eastern Cape for instance, but on the early 19th century maps of different parts of Southern Africa, people really emerged. You could see them on the map. And when I set out to use these old maps to find places, I discovered that um, they were often wildly inaccurate um, because they'd been compiled by cartographers, usually in England or Germany, drawing on information that they got out of books um, 
or reports of travelers. But I also realized that not only were these maps useful in my attempt to chart the movements of people and to understand what so-called tribal names might have meant in the early 19th century, these maps also enabled me to see Southern Africa from the point of view of people who lived in the era that I was writing about. Um, so a lot, of, a lot, maybe most historical cartography is focused on the subject of getting the map right, correcting errors. There's a narrative of progress that goes along with it. But there's this um, other aspect of historical cartography that, that I seized on, and which is seeing the world from a different point of view, from the, the point of view of people in different eras, uh, using the maps they drew on and they drew to understand their mindset and the way they saw the landscape. So that's all that, how all that came about. Well, I'm, I'm sure this interview will be of great interest to many, many people trekking across African history and culture. So thank you, Norman Etherington, for talking to Africa past and present. And thank you for having me on. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.